Good evening, everybody. I'd like to warmly welcome you to our Planet Talk this afternoon. I'm so tired of waking up tired. Are we in the midst of a sleep loss epidemic? Well, as a long-time insomniac, I know I'm looking forward to hearing uh, about the fascinating insights our panellists are going to offer us today. My name is Deb Tribe. I'm from ABC Radio Adelaide. It's my pleasure to be facilitating what I hope is going to be a very interesting discussion for us. Before I do introduce our panellists, it's important, I think, to acknowledge that we meet today on the ancestral lands of the Ghana people and we acknowledge and respect the Ghana people's cultural, spiritual, physical and emotional connection with their land, waters and community and acknowledge the Ghana people as the custodians of the lands and the waters on which we meet today. I'd like to pay respect to all elders, past, present and emerging. Well, it's my privilege to welcome our three distinguished professorial panellists today. They are, starting at the end, Professor Danny Eckert, an internationally renowned expert in sleep research and a passionate advocate for the importance of sleep health. Danny serves as director of the Adelaide Institute for Sleep Health at Flinders University and has recently also taken up the role of deputy director and theme leader of clinical translation at the Flinders Health and Medical Research Institute. He's an expert on sleep apnea and has identified the four key reasons why people get sleep apnea and has applied this knowledge to develop new targeted therapies. Professor Jill Dorian is co-director of the Behaviour Brain Body Research Centre at the University of South Australia. She has a PhD in psychology in sleep and chronobiology research and a master of biostatistics. Jill works with sleep-deprived populations, including adolescents, pregnant women and shift workers to support their health and safety. And Professor Greg Roach is the head of the Sleep and Circadian Rhythms Laboratory at CQ University's Appleton Institute for Behavioural Science. Greg conducts research in the sleep laboratory in road, rail and plane simulators and in workplaces that employ shift workers. And his research is focused on understanding the short-term and long-term consequences and in workplaces that employ shift workers. So please welcome our three panellists. <laughs> now, recent research of 1,000 Australians based on self-report found that, on average, people get seven hours of sleep each night, but 12% get less than five and a half hours. Anyone here in that category? Yes, <laughs> good third. 50% report they don't get adequate sleep, that's half of us. 30% are sleeping during the daytime. 20% have nodded off while driving, how alarming is that? And 17% have fallen asleep at work in the past month. Has anyone done that here? <laughs> yeah, I wish. So let's start with the basics. Danny, I might start with you. What is sleep and why do we need it? Look, sleep's the, uh, the absolute best medicine there is and the reason we need it is we get tired. Uh, every day we, uh, we wake up, we do our things throughout the day and uh, this enormous sleep pressure comes and, uh, and we go to sleep and the body uh, fixes and, and, and learns and recuperates from the, uh, the daily activities. So it's our body's way of just looking after itself after the, the other 16 hours a day work that we do and, and our mental energy. Look, look, that's right. And, you know, as we learn more about the science of sleep, we now know that this is uh, 
a phenomenon that occurs across species, right down to uh, jellyfish now have sleep-like behaviour that, that has been observed. So it's, uh, it's an important thing. We often hear how important diet and exercise is. Is this equal to them in terms of looking after our basic health? Look, look you mentioned those two other pillars of health and, and certainly sleep is, is the third pillar of health. One in which, I guess, at a societal level, uh, we are not uh, as accustomed to uh, hearing about, uh, and, uh, but certainly in terms of its uh, uh, benefits and uh, on, the, on, on the health and, and, and well-being, it's right up there as one of the three pillars of health. What are the stages of sleeping? Because a lot of us um, might feel that we don't get a lot of sleep, and I imagine that different things happen to us as we sleep. So what yeah. are those stages? Look, we used to think that sleep was uh, very much a kind of comatized state where you go off to, to bed and you, uh, you lay there and not much goes on at all. But we now know that you cycle in roughly 90-minute cycles from lighter, what we call stage one sleep, into stage two sleep, which is, takes up about half of the night, then into that lovely deeper sleep, stage three or slow-wave sleep, and then rapid eye movement or, or REM sleep. And uh, certainly in REM sleep... Uh, if we did not have uh, electrodes over the eyes, your brain activity is as alert as you were awake. So, so you know, very lots and lots of activity going on during sleep. Certain hormones, things like growth hormone, are only released uh, pretty much during deep sleep. So, these are the these are the standard cycles that we uh, we, we pattern through throughout throughout the night. Wow, how much, generally speaking, should we get to function optimally per night? Look, it varies across, uh, across the lifespan, but certainly for an adult six, uh, age 18 to 64, the recommended is seven to nine hours a night. Uh, once you get over 65, it's still uh, seven to eight hours per night. And clearly on the, uh, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, infants spend a lot of time sleeping, uh, albeit broken sleep. So does good sleep lead us to have a longer, healthier life? Look, that's what the data says. If you, uh, you know, when you ask that question to uh, literally millions of people and you put all that data together, uh, on average, how, how many hours per night do you sleep? The people that ask, answer, you know, that seven to eight uh, hour tend to live longer. So for people like me that say there'll be plenty of time to sleep when I'm dead, um, what actually happens to our body when we're not getting that seven to nine hours a night? Look... Uh, we, we've, all, we've all experienced that, and, uh, and I imagine folks in the audience might experience it more than, than most in terms of uh, sleeping difficulty. We feel rotten the next day, so if we don't get enough sleep or we get uh, disrupted sleep due to a sleep disorder. So in terms of what's going on in the body, it's, it's, it's everything. And I, I said at the start, it is the best medicine we have. Because, um, you know, one way of describing it is a garbage truck comes in throughout the night and picks up all the rubbish that we've collected throughout the day. So if we're not getting enough, and that includes in the brain, uh, where memory and learning is taking place, uh, the restorative repair that's going on in the tissues and the muscles, uh, the immune system's being restored, every single cell in the body is, uh, is active and, and, and uh, doing something when we sleep. Well, this is perhaps generally to the panel then. If sleep is so vitally important to us, why do we dismiss sleep as something we have to sort of shoehorn into our hectic lives rather than actually scheduling time to make sure we get enough sleep? What is it about our lives? Greg? I think it's potentially because 
we can convince ourselves that we can overcome some of the short-term effects of sleep loss. So we can power through if we don't get enough sleep on a particular day or we stay up late cramming for an exam or something like that. But as Danny has said, if uh, you habitually are a short sleeper, then there's long-term effects on health that you might not see for 10 or 15 years. We know that people who habitually get five to, only five to six hours of sleep, they're more likely over the years to become obese, to develop type 2 diabetes, to suffer from cardiovascular disease. So I think people were potentially thinking, oh, I can get through tomorrow, and maybe they're uh, willing to get short sleep, but maybe they should be thinking, what are the longer-term effects in five or ten years' time? So can you catch up on sleep? Can you go for four hours a night for a few nights and then sleep for 12 and, and you're going to be okay? That typically doesn't work uh, particularly well. What, what we do know, though, is that if you don't get enough sleep during the night time, that's not your opportunity lost. If you have some free time in the afternoon, perhaps you could supplement your short sleep during the night time with a bit of a daytime nap. And that sleep that adds together is beneficial. Okay, and is there an assessment? Because I think problems are only taken seriously in the um, modern world if there's a dollar figure put on them. Yeah. Is there economic assessment being done on the sleep loss, uh, what the, the impact of that is on our society? Look, in, in Australia, a couple of years ago, uh, the Sleep Health Foundation and the Australasian Sleep Association uh, commissioned Deloitte to, to look at that very question uh, very carefully. Uh, so an independent report uh, told us that $66 billion a year is the cost, the economic impact of uh, inadequate sleep in the Australian community. I mean, it's a, it's a huge number. Uh, the direct health costs alone are uh, in excess of, of, of six billion. So this is more than things like diabetes. And uh, you know, it's, it has a profound uh, effect on the uh, Australian economy. 66 billion is a mind-blowing figure. So Jill, can we look at some of the reasons why we're not getting enough sleep these days? What is going on in our lives? Well, I think a lot of us are really stressed and uh, the work our work lives are changing, so with increases in technology and the fact that a lot of us have smartphones, we're getting emails at all times of night. There was some really cool work that was done by the Sleep Health Foundation that found this enormous number of people that actually wake up during the night, check their emails and then go back to sleep. Um, so this idea that anywhere where we have a phone or a computer we're at work is really affecting our ability to unwind and get to sleep when we have the chance. Um, and we see this technology not just in adults, but um, our children have increasing access to technology and it's creeping into the bedroom. And uh, I think that's one big reason why we're struggling to get, so get sleep. Who here takes their phone to bed at night and gets sucked into the rabbit hole of looking at it? Mm. Okay, that, that's, not, that's pretty good, really. Yeah, I'm that's glad really to good. That. Mm. Um, and of course, at night time, if you've got a very active mind, you can ruminate over things. People have worries. Is that... Uh, something that's reported to you guys as well? Absolutely, and that, that's really normal. Um, but of course, when you start lying in bed thinking about what you're anxious about, then you realise that you're not sleeping, then the next thing is that you're anxious about not sleeping. <laughs> and so it can be really difficult to break that cycle. But also, I think sometimes our expectations of sleep are a little bit too perfect, and so it's normal for us to wake up a little bit during the night. It's normal for us sometimes if we've had a bad day to take a little bit longer to get to sleep. And so I don't think we need to stress um, too much because that's actually counterproductive. Is there a medical definition of an insomniac? Absolutely. 
Yeah, look, look, there is, and um, it's, it's changed over time, but if you, on a regular basis, are having trouble getting to sleep or, or maintaining sleep and it's impacting your daily life, then that fits the definition of uh, insomnia. Are you a good sleeper? Look, I, I am because I, I practice what I preach and I'm, I'm fortunate, you know, I don't have a sleep disorder, um, but I certainly see, uh, you know, many people who do, who we, uh, you know, that's, that's why we, uh, we do what we do to try and, try and help those, uh, you know, million and a half people that, in Australia that do have a sleep disorder. Julie, yeah. how about you? Uh, please don't judge me for this. I'm not a very good sleeper. Um, I don't think that makes me worse at my job. I think that makes me more passionate to try and help other people that are struggling with sleep for various reasons. There are some issues that women face that perhaps men don't. One of them is pregnancy. Mm -hmm. What effect does that have on sleep? Uh, huge, because our bodies are changing so much. So we've got a lot of hormones rushing around that affect our daytime sleepiness. We also have changes in the way our um, mucosa uh, levels and um, the level of inflammation in our body. We're carrying extra weight because of the, the baby growing inside us. And so we've got different pressures on our body, which means that even if we didn't have issues like sleep disorder breathing, which can start with snoring before we were pregnant, the body changes in pregnancy make that much more likely. What about after you have children? I think there are lots of stresses for men and women in terms of sleeping at that stage. It's Yeah, that's tough. Um, and... Uh, helping infants to sleep and, and getting into good sleep patterns is, is a massive area for sleep research. We have some great colleagues that work in that area. And then, of course, as we get older, there's different health issues that start impacting on our sleep. Um, for women uh, with the onset of menopause, we have temperature changes, which, um, because temperature and sleep are so closely related to each other, can make it very difficult for us to get good sleep. Well, one of the things that you've been looking at in your work is... Um, when you are suffering sleep loss, you've been looking at the area of chrono behaviour. What is that? So we're really interested not just in what you do for your health, but what times of day you do that at. So not just what you eat, but when, not just how much you exercise and what intensity it is, but what time, what time it is. And, and we know, for example, that it's easier for our body to do things at different times of day because we have these daily rhythms. So it's much easier for us to get good quality sleep if we're sleeping at night time, just because we're biologically designed to do that. Similarly, if we eat during the night, our bodies are designed to be asleep and not processing food. So there's probably going to be a cost in terms of the effectiveness of the way we metabolise that food. Um, and so how do we schedule our day so that we minimise our body or our timing disruption and maximise the benefit of those activities that we're engaging in to promote health? Those of us that have got children or grandchildren or children in our lives can be really concerned about social media mm. and its impact. I mean, I think many of us probably experienced getting a bit of bullying on the way home from school here and there. Is it around the clock now and what effect is that having on adolescents? I think that that's a really important observation is that um, for us when we were at school, bullying mostly occurred um, on the way home from school or after school behind the bike sheds, but now um, children have increasing access to um, devices and so that means that bullying can be 24-7. It can intrude into after school time and also during the night. And we've been working with a group called Resilient Youth. They're a fantastic not-for-profit in Melbourne and they work with schools across Australia and they've got a large data set of more than 300,000 kids. And, and we looked at how many... Um, school children from the ages or well, grades 3 to 12 reported using their mobile phone during the during the night and 25% of the year 3s said that they used their phone between the hours of 10pm and 6am 
wow. which um, was really staggering. Mm. And then not surprisingly, perhaps, that increases to more like 80 90% when you get to year 12. So it's something that we need to really think about. Yeah, that's very worrying indeed. Mm. Well, Greg, I know you're such a good sleeper that you could sleep for Australia. I've already heard that about <laughs> you. And, and you specialise in looking at shift work. What is the definition of a shift worker, especially in the, the gig economy that we have these days? To be honest, I don't even know what the definition is anymore because when I started doing my PhD, the definition was anyone who worked outside the hours of 9 to 5, Monday to Friday was a shift worker. Um, and back in the day, that meant that maybe you know 10 to 15% of us were shift workers. But as you say, with the gig economy and the way um, people work nowadays, most of us probably fit that definition of shift work. So um, what we look at now is um, people who work late at night or during the night, um, people who have to get up very early in the morning, and people who do long extended shifts are now kind of taken into our definition of shift work. So that now encompasses probably about 40% um, of uh, Australia's workforce. But as you say, it's growing um, week by week. Wow, that means that $66 billion figure is probably going to be going up in the future. Uh, Greg, how do you actually go about your research? Do you get people into the sleep clinic? Do you track them? How do you get the data? We do all kinds of different studies. Some of them are we're bringing relatively healthy, relatively young people into our sleep lab and we perturb them in some way. We keep them awake during the night time or... Uh, we make them stay awake for a lot longer than they usually would or we put them onto slightly peculiar schedules. Um, they're, they're all to answer um, research questions that we then hope that we can apply to a shift work situation to make shift workers' lives better. So we do laboratory studies. We also do simulator studies. So I was lucky enough to do some uh, work with um, airline pilots in 747 simulators uh, where we were looking at um, the effect of... Uh, working long hours and not necessarily being able to obtain as much sleep as you would like on decision-making in cockpits, which is obviously critical <laughs> if you're the people... Well, if you're sitting up the front, it's pretty critical, but if you're sitting down the back, it's quite critical as well. So we do a lot of work in simulated work environments where, again, we can manipulate things and see how people react in an environment that is quite close to, the, to um, their real workplace, but without obviously the um, safety implications. So the laboratory, the simulator, and then also um, sometimes we have the opportunity to go out into the field with real shift workers doing their real jobs. And we tend to observe what happens in those situations. So we don't make them behave in a particular way or work a particular schedule, but we examine groups that are doing different types of schedules, observe the effects that it has on either their capacity to sleep well when they have time off or to do their job when they're at work. And then if we get enough data, we can kind of compare the, compare the different schedules that are out there to see what's best. Um, does anyone here wear one of those fitness trackers that tells you how much sleep you're getting and... Yeah, okay, so, you know, a fair proportion of people. So what happens to the data that's gathered from those? Who gets it? Well, at the moment, it's all owned by the companies because if you read down to page 23 on your <laughs> agreement, when you have agreed to put that on, then you have agreed to let that company use your data. So I don't actually know what they're using it for, but I assume they're using it to sell us products. What we want to do, and we're working with some um, big 
data companies at the moment who have sleep trackers commercially available, what we want to do is partner with those organisations so that we can have access to the sleep data at least and we're making the argument that we can do good things with the data. So for example, if every Good instead of evil. Good instead of evil, if you believe that selling people products that they don't really need is an evil thing to do. Um, but one thing that we can do, if we are tracking, like back in the day, Jill and I would, we worked together um, during our PhD, we would, we would have to spend three or four years to collect 10,000 days of data with a group of shift workers. And that's about what you need to get a good understanding of how what they're doing um, at work is affecting their capacity to sleep and then their capacity to work safe, safely and efficiently. But these organisations that have uh, activity trackers on you now, they collect 10,000 people days of data like in one day. Because if they've got 10,000 users, that's 10,000 that's 10, days. And a lot of these have, uh, well, one we're working with has half a million users, but the bigger companies have millions and millions of users. Wow. So there's actually good that can come um, with big data or that's the argument we're making. <laughs> well, we hear a lot about our circadian rhythms and how we're disrupting those. What is a circadian rhythm? Basically, uh, inside you exists essentially a body clock. And your body clock, Jill mentioned earlier, is dictating the times of day where certain behaviours are appropriate and not appropriate. And your body clock is helping those behaviours to occur. So one of the big ones is sleep and wakefulness. So if you are normally entrained such that you're awake during the daytime and then asleep during the nighttime, you'll know that your body clock at around 10 or 11 o'clock is starting to make you feel a little bit sleepy. What you don't know is that system is also uh, dropping your body temperature, making it easier to fall asleep, keeping it low during the nighttime. And then when your body clock um, timing is such that you need to wake up in the morning, it starts heating up. So your body clock is um, which, which is responsible for these circadian rhythms, is running your sleep-wake cycle. But as Jill uh, touched on also, just about every physiological cycle that happens is dictated by the body clock. The digestive system is another one that Jill touched on. That's why when shift workers, particularly people working at night, uh, eat during the night time, it's not like you can turn on your digestive system to cope with that meal because your body clock still believes, and it is, nighttime. So it's kind of switched digestion off. So it's very important to just about all the activities we do. Well, let's look at that because you've looked at chrono behaviour, Jill, and you've done it with healthcare workers. And I'll come back to the importance of frontline healthcare workers in a moment, but you did a lot of examination of um, nurses and midwives that are doing shift work, and you found some strategies of people that are shift working, how to deal with the circadian rhythm properly. So what did you find about sleep? What's the best sleep strategy? So um, we particularly focused on night working nurses, and so we, some of the, um, we were able to look at different aspects of their health, so different aspects of their biological, psychological and social health and we were able to find that there were a group of um, midwives and nurses that despite being in shift work for 20 years had really great health indicators and you'll find this if you look at shift working groups there are a group that are more vulnerable um, and have a, a health profile that's more consistent with the kind of risk that Greg mentioned earlier and also have safety and performance risk but there's another group that do really well and we wanted to know what is it that they're doing that keeps them so healthy and safe at work over 20 years so they sleep in before night shifts or they nap prophylactically we call it to, to get a little top up before they go in 
Um, and they also use a whole bunch of other um, kind of strategies. So they use their caffeine strategically. They don't drink too much of it. They um, drink it during the times where their body clock would like to be asleep. So they give themselves an extra boost at that time. Um, and they don't drink it too close to bedtime. Uh, they do a whole bunch of stuff psychosocially, so they rely on each other for support. They talk about shift work, they talk about how they manage it, they talk to their family, as opposed to withdrawing, which is something we very often see in shift workers, is that tiredness and that social withdrawal. Um, and then there's a whole lot of strategies as well around exercise and driving and also work-related strategies that we see. I guess it's important when you're driving, given that we've heard that 20% of people not off when they're driving that you do pull over and rest if you need to. There's nothing. There's no substitute for that, is there? There isn't, and I think that's one of the pieces of work that we often do with shift workers is myth busting. So there are people that will use caffeine and napping, pulling over, and that really is, as you said, is the only safe way to do it. Things like turning up the radio or winding down the windows or turning chewing ice chips is something that we often hear, which is a bit strange. Those will not keep you awake, um, and so you'll be maybe getting a false sense of security um, if you're feeling like you might be going to sleep behind the wheel, then you really need to pull over. And, and maybe just to put some numbers around that, if you're awake for 19 hours in a row uh, and you measure your performance, it's as though you've got a blood alcohol concentration of 0.05. Um, if you go on to 24 hours, it's now 0.1. Um, or you can get there other ways. You can, if you restrict your sleep for a week, for five hours a night, for an entire week, you're also performing as though you're intoxicated. So, you know, this is a really powerful uh, thing that's, you know, it's having a profound effect on our, our body when we don't get enough. It sure is. Look, one of the areas that you're an expert in is one of the other reasons why we're not getting enough sleep is sleep apnea. What is sleep apnea? So sleep apnea is a, a very common condition. It affects uh, over a million Australian adults. Uh, and this is where you go off to sleep uh, and, and in the case of obstructive sleep apnea, uh, you're still trying to breathe but you're, you're, perhaps you're snoring a little bit and the throat area is actually closing off. So you're making breathing efforts but you cannot get enough air. So your oxygen levels are going down, uh, you, you're working hard to breathe and you're placing stress on the heart, you wake up for a little bit and it happens again and again and again throughout the night. So, Is it possible to have sleep apnea and not actually know you've got it? Sure, you know, 90% of people in the community with sleep apnea do not have a formal diagnosis of, of sleep apnea or, or potentially more. So most of us do, do not know. Uh, others may know but uh, haven't, you know, decided not to get treatment yet. But uh, absolutely. Well, if you're in a household and you sleep with a snorer, you might get a bit of an insight as to whether they've got it or not. But yeah. how do you know when snoring tips into actually not breathing properly? Look, there's um, many ways that people might present for help. Um, one of the most common is certainly bed partners. You know, it's a pretty scary thing to be lying next to someone and see them stop breathing over and over again and struggling to, uh, to gasp for air. So this, this is one reason why people go and, and talk to their doctor about it. Perhaps they're waking up with headaches. Perhaps they're not waking up refreshed. Perhaps they have had some near-miss uh, incidents on the road. Uh, and just not feeling quite right. Um, so they're all the ways that you know, people can, uh, can find out whether or not they, they do have sleep apnea often. Well, breathing itself is a very complex motor skill. We just take it for granted because it sort of happens mm. without, without us thinking about it too much. Mm. But what are the reasons that you've identified that actually cause sleep apnea? 
So, so there's four main reasons that we've now, now figured out. Some people uh, have what we call a, an anatomical problem, so their throat area from the back of their nose to their throat is either uh, too floppy or it's too narrow. And things like obesity can crowd the airway, but uh, thin people get sleep apnea too. So there's, there's different sort of anatomical reasons. Uh, the other three are, are what we consider non-anatomical. So the, uh, around the airway, we've got 26 little muscles that all work in beautiful synchrony to help us breathe while we're awake. Um, and uh, yeah, often that, that falls apart when we go off to sleep. It doesn't, either you don't get enough muscle activity or it doesn't work in a coordinated way. So that's another reason. Some people, it turns out they wake up too easily. They're just light sleepers. And, and that's about a third of people with sleep apnea. I uh, have you know, a lot of over overlap with, with what we consider to be insomnia or, or very light sleepers. They can't get into deep sleep, which is much better for your breathing stability. And the other one is, is basically uh, how, how you respond to carbon dioxide levels, which is uh, uh, the main driver of breathing when we're asleep. And some people are just too sensitive to changes in carbon dioxide. Wow. Are you able to identify for someone that presents with suspected sleep apnea? Firstly, are you able to diagnose they definitely have it and then work out which sort they have? Yeah, look, I mean, we've talked about technology a little bit on the front end here and um, traditionally to find out whether you or not you've got sleep apnea, you need to go to the sleep laboratory, have a sleepover with lots of electrodes on and, uh, uh, and a team will monitor you and they'll look at every breath you take throughout the night and decide whether or not you, you, know, you have obstructive breathing. Um, we now have technology that allows that to happen in the home uh, and there's a, certainly a big shift to do the monitoring in the home uh, rather than the lab in, in many cases. And, and us and others have now worked towards, um, you know, and that will help you get the diagnosis. Um, but now we're working very heavily on not only getting the diagnosis, but trying to use that information to figure out exactly why you as an individual get your sleep apnea so that we can deliver, you know, new targeted uh, therapies for, for, for uh, you know, based on that individual's underlying reasons for so getting it. So you're really looking at that particular patient and trying to personalise the treatment to them to meet their yeah, particular problem. What we call precision medicine, that's Great. right. Yeah. Um, so you've diagnosed someone's got sleep apnea. Has anyone here been diagnosed with it or has suspected sleep apnea? Hmm. Yeah, right. okay, once again, a hmm. fair number of hands going up. Um, so what then are the therapies that you can use to treat it? Yeah, look, the most common therapy um, invented here in Australia in the early 80s. Now, millions of people around the world use this. It's called continuous positive airway pressure. It's essentially uh, blowing uh, air into the airway to keep it open. So uh, you wear a mask and it blows air in and uh, just stabilises the anatomical problem for, as to why people get sleep apnea. Now, the, the second most common therapy is, is wearing a mouth guard fitted by a dentist that pulls the jaw forward a little bit, called a mandibular advancement splint. Uh, and then we have some other therapies such as positional therapy, which help you sleep on your side a little more, which can also make the airway less collapsible and, and, and stabilise breathing. Uh, and our team and others are, working, are now working on, on new medicines to try and uh, treat sleep apnea. At the moment, we do not have any... Uh, drugs to treat sleep apnea and, and that's that's something that we are uh, as we've worked out why the muscles relax uh, around the throat we're, we're now looking at medicines that will actually activate the uh, the muscles to keep the airway open during sleep that's incredible mm. but if you've been diagnosed and you've tried one of these therapies say CPAP I've heard that people don't like the idea of going to bed with an oxygen mask on they find it really interferes with their life if you try a treatment and it doesn't work what will happen to you if you have sleep apnea and mm. you don't have it treated? 
Look, um, we, we've talked about all the many things that, that can happen to the body, but I think that, look, the simplest way of, of saying, and it varies between individuals, but if you're getting disrupted sleep or not enough sleep, um, it affects every single organ in your body and in every single cell in your body. So, uh, and Jill mentioned that some people are more resilient to those effects than others, at least in the short term, but um, you name it, pick an organ and you know, maybe you'll feel more grumpy during the day, maybe you'll be more reactive to uh, your decision, uh, decisions that you have to make, maybe you will have uh, gut problems, maybe it'll be the heart, you know, it's, uh, it, it's a long list of uh, unwanted uh, uh, bed partners. Well, can we see yeah. if we add something else to the list? Because yeah. we live in an era at the moment where um, coronavirus is happening globally and we're all trying to watch our, our health. We're all in a, a big tent today with a lot of people from all around the world, which is fantastic. Yeah. But does lack of sleep also affect our immune system? Absolutely. And, and, and uh, Greg's got some data on this, or knows of some data, so uh, yeah, why don't you speak to this, Greg? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, lack of sleep does uh, suppress your immune response, and we personally haven't been able to do these studies, to, to my knowledge, but um, some people have exposed people, not to coronavirus, because it's very new, but to the cold virus, and from the studies they did just, just a few years ago, they found that the amount of sleep that you uh, get in the two weeks leading up to your exposure has a very big influence on whether you eventually um, develop a cold or not after being exposed to the virus. So if you have less than seven hours of sleep um, night by night in the two weeks before being exposed to the cold virus, then compared to someone who has more than eight hours of sleep over those two weeks, the person with less sleep is three times more likely to develop a cold after being exposed to the virus. And that's purely based on the amount of sleep that they've had in the preceding two weeks. So we actually don't know anything about coronavirus, but if we can generalise uh, from that study, we at least know that um, immune function is suppressed and you'll be more likely to fight a potential infection if you get a reasonable amount of sleep. Wow. And what does that mean for frontline health workers that might be working really long hours mm trying to help people that have suspected coronavirus? Well, you can only assume, as I say, we, we, we don't have no data, but you can only assume that we already know that doctors and nurses um, have rosters that are quite challenging in terms of um, them being able to themselves maintain a healthy lifestyle. And we also know that in a crisis, they're asked to do more shifts, um, some overtime shifts, extra shifts, work later, start earlier. So you can only assume that if this, if coronavirus becomes bigger and bigger in Australia, as it seems to be, then those health workers will have to take particular special care in attempting to maintain a reasonable amount of sleep, or else you would expect that, yes, their infection rates will be, will be larger than otherwise. Okay, well, let's look at a few of the other remedies that we often go to for sleeplessness. Um, does anyone take sleep medication? to knock them, either natural or, yep, so once again, a, a decent proportion of people. Pros and cons of sleeping tablets without breaking them down to the individuals, what are your views on that? Look, they serve, serve a purpose, they can, um, they can work well, particularly after a, a traumatic event in someone's life, it's, you know, it can be very difficult to, uh, to maintain sleep during that time and, and so 
Typically, they're recommended for short periods of time. Now, there are many people that are on these uh, medicines for, for very long periods of time, and uh, you know, in some instances, it's a balance between uh, are the uh, adverse effects of the uh, insomnia or the, or the sleep problems worse than the, some, some of the increased risks with, with the medicines? Things like, you know, you're more likely to have a fall um, if you take these medicines, particularly in the elderly. Um, so that's, that's, you know, it's always with any medicine, you're balancing an, um, a, you know, risk versus sort of benefit profile. You know, somewhat counterintuitively, we, we, when we figured out that, you know, a third of people with sleep apnea are light sleepers, we actually studied um, whether or not a sleeping pill can, can actually help some of those people. Um, you know, when I first started the field, that would have been considered malpractice to give a sleeping pill to someone with sleep apnea. But in fact, we, we found that um, with these certain medicines, it halved their sleep apnea severity if we gave it to the right people. Right. Yeah. Greg, what about light? Because we, a lot of us watch t TV or stream late into the evening or we're at our computers typing away, or we're sitting on our phones checking Twitter or what the latest news is before we go to bed. What sort of interference, or is there any interference with that sort of light that we get before bed? Yes, well, the circadian system, or the body clock, uh, one of the main signals it receives to know what time of day it is, is exposure to light. Sunlight, um, primarily, but we also know that indoor light is definitely sending a signal to your circadian system. And especially the blue light that you get in some kind of uh, devices is also sending a very strong signal to your circadian system. So we know that one of the ways that um, device use um, and computer use during the evening and later at night is affecting your sleep is that that light is, uh, to a certain extent, delaying or making your body clock run later than it otherwise would. So if you're the kind of person who would normally start feeling sleepy around 10, 10, 30, go off to bed at 11 and fall asleep, and you're using um, those light emitting devices up to that point, then you could be delaying your body clock such that you're not able to actually fall asleep until midnight or after midnight. So it can definitely have an effect. Jill, what about our general sleeping environment and our sleep hygiene? What recommendations would you give us for trying to get the best sleep that we can? I guess think about temperature, light and noise. Those are three main things that, that help keep us awake, apart from the stress that we've already talked about. So if you've got a bedroom that's dark, that, um, that ability to shut out the daytime light or the evening light um, can't be underrated. They did some studies with shift workers and they went into their homes and put black plastic on their windows and their daytime sleep improved immediately. So think about having a bedroom that's dark. Think about having a bedroom that's the right temperature if possible. So which is cool. Which is cool between about 18 and 24 degrees depending because temperature changes happen when we start falling asleep. They're one of the things our body does and Greg already talked about how the core um, loses heat, so um, our core body temperature drops across the night. So our temperature is really important for maintaining sleep, so having that temperature is good. And noise, um, trying to avoid spikes in noise. So if you can have a quiet bedroom, that's pretty good. Or use things like white noise or um, fans and things that can stop you from getting disturbed from noise spikes. Greg, is there such a thing as not enough noise when you're trying to sleep? Well, in our sleep lab, I know for a fact there's a thing of not enough noise. Um, we all work in sleep labs that 
are basically designed to be as quiet as possible so that when we're running our studies, the noises that happen outside don't interfere. But we actually had to start turning our noise machine on for studies where we didn't actually need it in the laboratory because participants were coming in and they were freaked out <laughs> by the lack of noise in the lab and they found it quite uncomfortable to be somewhere so quiet and they were disturbed falling asleep in such a quiet environment. So we just quietly, we didn't tell them it was a noise machine, we just said it's the air conditioning, um, which is something that's very good um, for people who do find that they have uh, problems with um, noise in their bedroom. If it's too quiet, which is actually a rare thing, you can use white noise, it's kind of soothing, just of an air conditioner or a fan. Or as Jill said, if you live somewhere where it's a little bit noisier and you maybe get spikes in traffic or um, air traffic or whatever it is, then you can use um, maybe you know 20 or 30 decibels of white noise to kind of make the spikes seem less dramatic, yeah. What about alcohol? I mean, I know a lot of people would say they sleep better if they have a glass or two of wine. That may or may not be the case. I'd like to hear from you. But I imagine alcohol itself would be a stimulant and would be bad for our sleep. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Sorry, Danny. No, no, go ahead, Jo. Yeah. Uh, it's very common to use alcohol mm. as, a, as a sleep aid, and a lot of shift workers do, especially if they're trying to sleep during the day. They might have a couple of drinks um, and report that that helps them to, to go off to sleep. The problem is that alcohol impacts on our sleep architecture, so it changes the way our brain wave patterns happen while we're asleep, um, and it does that in not very um, helpful ways for us. So our sleep tends to be more disturbed. Also... Um, uh, it's um, if you have if you're someone that's having a lot of alcohol chronically, drinking it can actually make your sleep onset latency or the time it takes you to go to sleep can make that period of time longer, which is a bit counterintuitive, because alcohol is of course has sedative product properties, but like you say, it's also euphoric drug, and so um, it's really not a good strategy to to use around sleep. Yeah, and I was just going to add, you know, one of the first studies I ever did um, at the Repat Hospital was to, um, we, gave, we brought people into the lab and we studied their physiology and we gave them uh, a measured dose of alcohol, three or four shots of vodka as it turned out. And um, what it does is it blocks your nose terribly. So, so you, you know, you, you might feel that congestion that you get in your nose and this is what we think actually makes people snore more when they... Uh, when they have uh, alcohol. So that's a commonly reported um, and uh, certainly that's what we found. It may also relax the muscles a little bit around the throat so it can cause these other sleep disorders, breathing problems that, uh, as well as the brain uh, effects that uh, Jill described. Well, Danny, you're a mountain bike rider and a marathon runner, so mm -hmm. what about exercise and sleep? Look, great, as long <laughs> as you don't do it ex uh, just before you go off to sleep. So, so certainly anything that would you know, wake us up uh, as we're uh, trying to get off to sleep is, uh, is counterproductive. But so how many hours should you leave before exercise and going to bed? At, at least a couple, um, you know, the more the better. Um, and, but what we do know is people that exercise uh, throughout the day, particularly endurance exercise, you, you have a deeper sleep um, than those who do not. And, you know, it seems like a lot of the restorative benefits that, that happen in the body happen during that slow wave or the, or the deep sleep, including uh, new memories and, and consolidation of uh, learnings that happen throughout the day. Well, um, we're going to have questions in a moment. So I think um, that Stuart and Ray have got a couple of mics and they'll take your questions if you've got one. So I'll get you to pop your hand up in just a moment and they can find you. But before we do that, we have to answer the question that today's talk poses. So I'd like to hear from each of you 
Um, are we in the midst of a sleep loss epidemic here in Australia? And how do you recommend, what are the key things for us to survive this 24-7 lifestyle in which we're living? Do you want to start, Danny? We'll move down. Look, look sure. Um, look, there are certainly uh, groups in, in, in our community that are, are, are incredibly sleep deprived. We've talked about some of those shift workers, uh, and it's often the most vulnerable in our communities that are uh, at risk. You know. Uh, those who are shift workers will often have longer commutes to, to get to work. Um, and, and so, yes, teenagers are the other ones. They do not, you know, 15% of teenagers get the recommended uh, uh, sleep allowance. I mean, it's an incredibly low number. So, so yes, there are certain groups in our community that are, that are, are sleep deprived and, and, and that's an issue. What do we do about it? Well, the first step, when you ask people how much sleep should they be getting, most people know they should be getting about eight, or, you know. Um, but what I don't think people are quite aware of is just what a profound effect it has on our body. Unless you're an insomniac, then you know everything about it, and that doesn't help you knowing all this information, <laughs> you know, actually. Um, so, so, you know, if you, you know, prioritizing sleep for a happy, healthy life is, uh, is, is certainly the recommendation. And, and if you are one of the one and a half million Australians who think you might have a sleep disorder, then I'd recommend going and have a conversation with your GP so you can. Uh, get that step rolling to a, to a better life. Watch one episode instead of binge watching next yeah. time you sit down in Look, front of your TV. That's right. Jill, what, what's your view on whether or not we've got a, an epidemic on our hands? Well, I guess if you look at the population data, so the epidemiological data, it doesn't really show that on average as a society we're having any less sleep now than we used to. Um, however, the, there's no way that we can't um, see these changing things that are coming into our lives that are putting new pressures on our sleep. And so technology is just one example. Um, and so I think that um, one of the other things that makes sleep so important right now is that the biggest threats to our healthcare system in, in Australia and other developed countries are actually chronic illnesses like type 2 diabetes, like cancers, stroke, um, issues with, with obesity. And the, the risk factors for those diseases are behavioural. And sleep is one of the pillars, you've heard that, but sleep is not just important because of the benefits of sleep itself. If you don't get enough sleep, that impacts all of your other health behaviours. If I'm sleepy, I'm less likely to exercise. I'm also likely to reach for that extra chocolate bar. I'm going to crave, you know, those, um, those foods that make me feel good, that help me deal with the mood problems I'm having because I'm not getting enough sleep. And so focusing on sleep and changing that actually helps you be more healthy across the board. And I think um, that's one of of the big things to think about. And the other one is that we um, culturally have this narrative that we're tough and we don't need sleep. So maybe just being kind to each other and actually talking about how much sleep we get. And if someone says they're a bit sleepy, help them out and take it easy on yourself and think about if you're going to do something safety critical, maybe you need a coffee first, maybe you need a nap. Mm. Thanks, Jill. Mm. Greg? Mm. Well, I'm not, I, I don't think I can agree that we are in a sleep loss epidemic. But as Jill and Danny have both said, there are certain members of society who are definitely not getting as much sleep as they should and are getting levels of sleep that are either impacting on their day-to-day -day behaviours, falling asleep while you're driving, falling asleep at work, and also impacting on their long-term health, type 2 diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease. So. To the, to the question, are we in an epidemic, I would say no. To the question, should we all get a little more sleep, or in some cases a lot more sleep, then definitely yes. 
Um, as Danny has said, there's almost nothing that you can think of from a health perspective or a behavior perspective or a performance perspective that isn't going to be improved by getting more sleep. So my uh, perspective is, I kind of think of it in terms of the amount you need to um, survive and the amount you need to thrive. And everybody kind of probably has those numbers or an understanding in their head of what that means for them. But for me, I know that if I get, if I'm under pressure, and I'm, but I'm getting my six hours of sleep, then I can survive on that. But ask anybody I work with or have previously worked with whether they want to be around me during <laughs> such periods and they'll probably say as little as possible. So I'm not really thriving. To thrive, I need eight hours to be like a happy, healthy, giving, encouraging person um, to be around, then I need eight, eight hours. So I don't encourage everybody else to think about that kind of thing. Yes, um, as Jill says, Getting less sleep can sometimes be seen as tough, but are we here to survive or are we here to thrive? Mm. So I would say get a bit more and we can thrive. And you're saying that the impact on our own health, of course, it's impacting other people as well if we're you know, not behaving well, if we've got short fuses, etc. So mm. it's, it's actually a much broader uh, ripple effect, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. That's exactly right. Well, who, who have we got our first question from? Is it down the front here? Just um, ask away, please. Okay. Um, how reliable, how reliable is uh, lab testing for sleep apnea, particularly when it's based on one night, and I've gone through this, I've been diagnosed with mild sleep apnea, mm. very uncomfortable experience, hooked up to wires, tossing and turning all night. Mm. Um, I've purchased uh, the mouth guard since, mm. uh, still snore a lot, $2,000 on, mm. I feel like I haven't really sort of moved on from the whole thing. So would you recommend more than one night, or what, what does the data actually say? Your story is what makes me go to work every day because <laughs> you're not alone. Many people, you know, the main therapy doesn't work for them or they've, they have tried one of these things. And at the moment, it's about a toss of a coin whether the mouth guard's going to work for you or not. And we don't, we don't know, you know, ahead of time. The tools that we and others are developing is to get those numbers more up to 80 90%. So, but, but to your core question, do we know from a single night? It's a snapshot in time. And, and yes, it's very accurate at... at, at answering the question at that snapshot in time. But we now know that, um, yes, like all things, it will vary. You know, if you sleep more on your back one night than the other, that'll change how severe your sleep apnea is. Um, and, and to do, give you a recent example, now we have these kind of cool technologies where we can measure over a number of nights relatively non-invasively. Uh, colleagues here uh, did this study in people with uh, the heart condition, atrial fibrillation, and they measured uh, what happened over a month. Um, in those from night to night, every single night. And what they found is when people had worse sleep apnea uh, on a particular night, the next day they were much more likely to have a, an atrial fibrillation event. Um, so so that's, that's the kind of information that we're now getting. I hope that helps your, your, your question. Yeah. Thanks for your question. Um, raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question, Ray and Stuart will come up the back, please. A uh, question for Danny. How long have the CPAP devices been around and is there anything emerging to say that there are negative or dangerous effects for people who use them, have maybe have used them for, say, 20 years? That's a, that's a really interesting question. Uh, look, they've been around since the early 80s, and, and um, uh, Professor Colin Sutherland in Sydney invented this device um, in, in his laboratory. Uh, 
you know, Colin is a very innovative person, made a mask and, and essentially reverse engineered a vacuum cleaner to make this thing work. And now millions of people around the world, you know, certainly benefit in terms of reducing their sleepiness. Um, uh, it, can re it can reduce rates of depression uh, and, and other sort of comorbidities. Uh, do we know of any negative health benefits? In very rare circumstances, it can do some, you know, if you've got other comorbidities, it can cause some, uh, some, some issues with uh, air going in wrong places and this kind of thing, but that's pretty rare. One study that was recently done that looked at a, a particular type of uh, sleep pattern, now this was not a CPAP machine, but it was another v a version, a very clever one that would actually kind of breathe for you. Uh, that did show that things were worse with that particular device in these people with, with chronic heart disease. Um, it actually made them worse, and so they've discontinued that product in that, in that group. But no, long-term use, we don't have uh, hard data to tell us that 20 years uh, of wearing these will, will cause harm. Um, sorry, down the front, please. Um, hi, um, I was question. Um, why am I more productive or think more clearly late at night and how is that affecting my sleep and should I change it or should I not? So you're a night owl, you feel more yes. productive at night, feel like you get more done. Mm. Greg? It might be because, I don't want to profile, but are you a teenager? Uh, 22. Yeah, relatively young, relatively healthy person. What we know is that people around your age do their body clock around that time usually does run a little bit later than others. That's why it's so hard when um, we start school at 8 o'clock in the morning and university lectures at like 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning because teenagers and adolescents, um, people early in their early 20s as well, tend to have later body clocks. So what I would advise you is if you can organise your life such that you can do your productive work in the evening, there's nothing wrong with that. And you might even be able to sleep in a little bit as well. The, the key is to make sure that if you are going to bed a little bit later because you feel productive and you want to get stuff done in the evening and later on at night time, don't set your alarm for just six hours later. Make sure you give yourself your good nine hours in bed. So even though you're doing your activities a little bit later than maybe other people, you're still obtaining a reasonable amount of sleep. Thank you for the question. Where have we got the next question? Over here, sorry. Um, I just wanted to know your opinion on blue light glasses and whether they're worth it or whether they're just a kind of marketing tool thing. Blue light glasses. Do you know about those? Look, I, I know a little bit about those. Um, so th these are, um, there's certain uh, devices and again this was, uh, all, all the cool stuff in sleep happens in Australia, I've got to say. I've worked overseas but many of the great inventions have happened here and this, this is one of them. So you can wear these glasses. Uh, they will shine blue light in. Now, the trick with these, and blue light al alerts us and will shift your underlying body clock. And, and one thing, we didn't talk about how cool this is, you know, understanding the biology of all these cells and organs have their own body clocks. Yeah. We're now targeting using medicine, uh, giving, giving heart medicine only at certain times of the day because it can have more of a profound uh, benefit if you give it the right chemotherapy. If you do it at the right cycle of your body clock can have more of a beneficial effect. So this is, this is a, you know, but again, and the same is true with these light glasses. You have to use them at the right time uh, for them to have a benefit. And they're, they're, if you've got uh, this delayed sleep phase syndrome that we sort of heard about here, that is you're having trouble getting off to sleep early because your body clock's out of whack, these things can make, bring your body clock back into whack and uh, help you avoid jet lag. 
just need to think very carefully about when you turn the blue light on because um, it's interesting that um, if you have the light exposure at certain times of day, you can be bringing your body, body clock forward, you can be advancing it, or if you have it at others, you can push it later so you can delay it um, and that depends when you when you get the light so making sure that you think about when you're using it relative to your own cycles is really important. So it sounds like if you're thinking of using it as a device you need to get some expert advice on how to use it properly. Yeah. Okay our next question here please. We've talked a lot about not sleeping enough can you sleep too much and what happens when you do? Great, great question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I personally can't. No, um, I can't. No, uh, I'm not aware of any states where people have actually slept too much, but I, I do know um, that people report that when they're sleeping a lot, one of the things that can happen is not necessarily a deficiency, but if you're just lying, the act of lying down, for some people, if you're lying down for too long, can be painful. So if you're lying on your head for 10 or 12 hours, I know that the rate of headache reported after long sleeps is longer. It's not because you've slept too much, though. It's because you've been in a position that's had pressure on your head for longer. But, but maybe just to follow up on that, um, yes, we know and we understand all the reasons why if you're getting six hours or less on a regular basis that causes inflammation and stress in the body and can, can, can damage the organs. It turns out when you ask people, uh, and again, this has been done and in, in, in millions of people have answered this question, on average, how many hours do you sleep per night? If they answer nine or more, that there's similar mortality risk than not sleeping enough. So there is something, now we don't know actually how much they're sleeping because it hasn't been measured, but when they answer that question, actually there, there seems to be some deleterious effects with uh, those who report sleeping you know, too long as well. It's actually a U-shaped curve. So that we do not understand as well, but it's very consistent across the studies and it may be related to other comorbidities, whether it be depression or other things that are going on that might otherwise cause you to sleep uh, you know, longer than you, or it might be just bio, your particular biology. We don't know. Thank you. Any more questions? Ray? Oh, thank you. Oh, hi. Um, what do we know about societies, um, the quality of sleep in societies where people work longer hours, stay up much later, but have a few hours in the middle of the day where they might have a bit of a nap? Like, like a siesta culture. Yeah, like a siesta mm, yeah. kind of thing. Siesta? Mm. Siesta. And how does that compare with Australia, we work nine to five? Yeah. Siesta cultures work really well because um, our, we've talked about this natural body rhythm that um, primes us to be asleep during the night. We've also got this post-lunch dip or post-prandial dip and you can, um, you probably all have noticed it that, are, you know, two or three in the afternoon, you start to feel a little bit sleepy. And if you look at um, rates of car accidents and stuff across the day, if you control for exposure, then you can see that there's two peaks, one sort of at four to six a.m. and then another peak in the early afternoon. And so we have this biology that primes us. And so that's what the siesta cultures surf to get their afternoon nap. Um, and so if you look at total sleep time across the 24 hours and you take that amount of sleep that they have at night and you supplement it with the afternoon nap, it um, tends to work really well. And the other thing is that the longer you stay awake for, the sleepier you get. And so if you're having your sleep in two lots, you're never awake for very many hours before you have to have another sleep. So that can be helpful too. It, it turns out that these societies are becoming you know, less and less common, true, you know, places yeah. like Spain, this, this is on the decline uh, with, with modern society pressures. So uh, 
the afternoon siesta is becoming a thing of the past, mm. sadly. And mm. the danger is that nighttime sleep won't expand to make up for that. Mm. Mm. Oh, I'm sorry, we're out of time today. So thank you very much for being a wonderful audience. Go home and get eight hours sleep if you can at the end of Wayne Adelaide. Please thank Professor Danny Eckert, Professor Jill Dorian, and Professor Greg Roach. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your time at Wayne Adelaide. Thank you.